Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 24, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. That's right. I said that fast. It's PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Same name as our podcast with a .com on the end of it. So my name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, which is available everywhere, and I encourage you to go out and grab a copy for the summer reading if you haven't already. And then uh, after you've read it, leave a review on Amazon if you would. So that's called Spiritual Grit. just came out about six weeks or so ago. And a couple years ago, the Jesus-Centered Life, which is sort of the foundation for um, what we do on here on this podcast, w- what does it look like to live a life that's uh, always centered around Jesus? And I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible. We'll mention that a little bit later today. So today we're diving into our first exploration of the tough side of Jesus. So we thought it would be fascinating to explore sort of Jesus in the raw. He, he is this uh, dichotomous mix of both tough and tender, and it's tough for people to categorize him because of that, because if you actually uh, read Jesus in the New Testament without any preconceived notions about who he is, there are so many contradictions uh, or apparent contradictions to his personality. Sometimes he's incredibly tender, and sometimes he's incredibly tough with people. And so we thought it'd be uh, a, a worthwhile exploration to take all of June and pay ridiculous attention to the aspects of Jesus that are undeniably tough. And in July, we'll focus on his shocking tenderness. So uh, that, that's what we'll uh, go after in July. So today, we're going to tackle a big kahuna right out of the gate, and that would be hell. So hell is actually a four-letter word. It actually has four letters in it. it and it's a four-letter word in some surprising ways, too, because I would make the case that in today's culture, people say the F word more often than they would say the H word. Like, hell is actually more of a, a forbidden word to talk about than the F word is, which is odd, because Jesus spends a great deal of time talking about the H word. So we've all heard these sort of fire and brimstone versions of, of hell— you know, we have all of us a picture in our mind when we talk about hell. We have some kind of cliched, uh, uh, sort of time-honored uh, depictions of what, what hell looks like, and it, it always has fire in it, and there's always writhing, and sometimes chains, and a lot of screaming, that, that kind of stuff. And we go through in the Church through seasons of perspectives on hell. Like, you know, when I was really young— it wasn't that unusual to hear hell talked about in church um, in very strong terms, and and kind of uh, the, the evangelism strategy that was very prevalent when I was growing up was built around this one phrase that I'm sure is familiar to those of you of a certain age. It was, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd go? So the very on-ramp premise into talking to somebody about a relationship with Jesus uh, was about hell from the very get-go. 
Um, a while back, I ran across uh, something that just stunned me from Penn Gillette, who's one half of the sort of bizarro magic team of Penn and Gillette. Uh, he said something that, uh, I, though he is an avowed atheist, he said something really <laughs> incredibly strong about his view of hell. So here's what he said. went back and found it, and I, th- I think this is fascinating. This is Penn Gillette of Penn & Teller. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, and proselytize means uh, trying to uh, evangelize someone into the kingdom of God. Um, he said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? I mean, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you, and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is, this is more important than that. And by the way, we'll put a, a link to this little diatribe from Penn Gillette on our podcast page so you can watch him. He, he actually recorded himself talking about this. It's just an interesting perspective. He's basically saying, even though I'm an atheist, I don't respect people who say they believe in God, but then never talk to people about heaven and hell. That doesn't seem like you even care. If you really believe that people could be going to hell, then why aren't you talking to them about it? He, for him, it just it, it, was, uh, it didn't make sense. It wasn't congruent. It wasn't loving. And of course, there's a, a broad range of people's ideas about hell. Um, one of my favorite all-time books is by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Great Divorce. If you haven't read The Great Divorce, it's a slim little book, but it is a brilliant treatise on hell, and it basically gives uh, C.S. Lewis a chance in story form to describe where he stands on hell. And so the story of The Great Divorce is the story of some people who are in hell who are given the chance to go on a bus ride for a day to visit heaven and they'll have the opportunity, once they're there, to stay in heaven if they want to. And so the cast of characters on this bus ends up in heaven, and they meet people in heaven. Some of them meet people from their past, and all of them are given the chance to stay. And what's fascinating, uh, the premise of this book is that people, even when they're given the opportunity for heaven, many people still choose hell over heaven. That's the premise of the book. So that that's uh, C.S. Lewis's perspective on heaven. You know, Stephen Hawking, the world-famous thinker, a scientist who recently passed away, he was famously a out-there atheist and famously proclaimed there is no heaven or hell. In fact, here's what he said. There is no heaven or afterlife for broken-down computers, he said. So basically he's describing human beings as broken-down computers. He said, uh, that's a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. So that's a very common atheist, secular perspective on hell. It's just part of the whole fairy tale. Or, um, you know, infamous uh, Christian pastor Rob Bell, who wrote a book, you know, many years ago called Love Wins, that sort of galvanized the entire Christian community on one side or the other of this question of hell, because uh, Rob Bell, a very popular megachurch pastor, 
basically made the case for what we call universalism, which is every person who ever lived could have a place in heaven. That was Rob Bell's premise in Love Wins. And it uh, got him a lot of criticism and a lot of love from from some some people, both inside and outside of the Church. But universalism is the idea that whether or not hell exists, none of us are going to go there in the end, because, because God is love. Or you could say, even in popular culture, this issue of hell comes up all the time. I, I did a little checking, because I remembered from watching The Simpsons that it seems like The Simpsons had hell as a regular part of their storylines, and sure enough, it was often a storyline on The Simpsons, and there, there was one episode where Homer Simpson had been sent to hell, and uh, he was chained up in hell, and his version of um, hellish things to do was that he was fed donuts, all the donuts in the world, by a blue demon. Well, it turns out that uh, Homer didn't consider this a punishment, actually. <laughs> And he and he, he he almost broke hell because he kept demanding more donuts. So oh, and also he discovered that hell had a poorly managed barbecue, and that in the end broke Homer's spirit. So so hell is treated as a you know a, a plot device or something funny. Obviously, the horror movies we watch often deal with hell in one way or another, or the resonance of hell. There's a new TV show on the I think it's on the WB network called Supernatural which is all about people who are fighting um, hellish beings supernaturally. And, and on that show, hell is depicted as a place where you lose your humanity. So hell is everywhere, and it's nowhere. I mean, it's all around us, but we don't really talk about it in a certain way. It's fine to use it as a plot device in a story or as a scare tactic, but we rarely hear it talked about church anymore or especially we don't hear it talked about in everyday conversation, and even in evangelism, we don't often hear it except from people that we would consider weird. We don't often hear that even in uh, uh, evangelism efforts. So all of this is really ironic, because Jesus talked about hell a heck of a lot. <laughs> he talked about hell all, all the time. It was, a, it was one of his uh, primary subjects, which is it, it because we pay ridiculous attention to Jesus, it's a perfect thing for us to consider. If Jesus talked about this a lot, and we don't, or we have some of these bastardized versions of what hell is like, then it's good to pay better attention to it. So, so we're going to tackle the big kahuna of hell today, and to do that, we need kind of a big gun to mix a metaphor. So I invited a close friend of mine who's also a big gun— He's Tom Melton, the longtime pastor, a longtime pastor and my longtime friend, who's now founder and president of a leadership consulting organization called Melton Leadership. Uh, by the way, we'll put a, uh, put a link to uh, Tom's uh, website on our podcast page if you want to check out what he's doing, and I might want to um, have him consult with you or your organization. We'll put that up there for you. Tom uh, was for many, many years pastor of a very large suburban church, that my wife and our whole family went to for uh, more than a decade, and I served as an elder there. And along the way, Tom and I developed a close friendship, and he is uh, my go-to person for conversations like this, and really any conversation about Jesus, Tom is my go-to person. So welcome, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be with you. So uh, I can't remember the last time you were on this podcast or what we talked about, but I just remember it was a great conversation, and like 
literally every conversation I have with Tom, if I look back on it, I, my wife will often ask me after I've been with Tom, well, what did you talk about? And I have to think about it for a minute uh, because our conversations are, to me, like music. They go in lots of different directions, and all of it holds together. So I thought it would be fascinating to have Tom uh, join us today and talk a little bit about this issue of hell from a pastor's perspective, from someone who preached every week for, you know, a couple of decades. What is this issue? How do you deal with this issue as a pastor of a church? So but before we uh, dive into that, um, I, I said that Jesus often mentions hell, and so I just wanted to very quickly skip through the Gospel of Matthew, and just to kind of back that up, to tell you the number of times that, uh, and in the context that Jesus talked about hell, just in the Gospel of Matthew alone. So in, in, uh, it's funny that in Matthew 5, which is the Beatitudes, we're used to thinking of the Beatitudes as sort of the, a walk through a, 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 a field of wildflowers, you know, there's a lot of happy, happy thoughts in the Beatitudes, except we discover that Jesus talks a heck of a lot about hell in the Beatitudes. So in, in Matthew 5, 22, he's, he's talking about how if, if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call somebody an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Later on in Matthew 5, in the same, uh, this, the, the kind of the same kind of rhythm, he talks about if, if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. The, the verse right after that, Matthew 5.30, if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. Matthew 7, when he's talking about entering the kingdom of God through the narrow gate, he says the highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. Or Matthew 10, 28, don't be afraid of those people who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear God. He's the only one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. <laughs> Matthew 16, when he's uh, telling Peter that his real name is Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I'm going to build my church, and then he says to Peter, and all the powers of hell are not going to conquer it. Or Matthew 18, he again reiterates his earlier sort of poetic couplet when he talks about if your eye causes you to sin, uh, gouge out and throw it away because you don't want the rest of you to burn in hell. <laughs> Matthew 23, he's talking to the religious leaders and the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites, and tells them that, that they, they would cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. So there, that wow, twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Finally, in Matthew 23, again to the Pharisees, he sa he's calling them snakes and sons of vipers, and how will you escape the judgment of hell? So this is just in Matthew, the, these references to hell, uh, they're, they're all over the place, and again, the, the dichotomy here is that we don't often talk about this anymore. So, Tom, my first question to you is, as a pastor of this church for, you know, decades, how did you deal with the topic of hell? When did it come up, say, in the, in the various aspects of what a pastor does? One thing you do is give sermons, another thing you do is counsel people, another thing you do is teach sometimes— um, how did you deal with this issue of hell when you were a pastor? Well, um, yeah, I, I, I think the the main context 
of uh, talking about hell for me was the main context of talking about everything, and that was uh, even those passages that you quoted, if you look at the bigger context, including the Sermon on the Mount and so on, they're always in the context of the kingdom of God. And so hell, in in simplest form, as far as I believe the Scripture teaches, is really a consequence. Um, and so it's a consequence of being uh, separated from the king. And so even in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about do, do this and this and this, and you will find the kingdom of God. And to be in the kingdom of God is basically heaven, and to be outside the kingdom of God is basically hell. So um, understanding it from that perspective, uh, that I, I think it, it goes against a lot of the um, sort of, in my opinion, um, misguided theology of hell, which sees it primarily as a punishment. And, and one of the reasons people rebel against it so much is it, it feels like an unfair punishment. And there's certainly plenty of uh, Scripture stuff to, to draw attention to that. The, and so, for example, uh, John Stott had a movement towards the end of his life called Annihilationism. And so he believed that people... Um, after a certain period of time, would just be annihilated, that it was an unfair punishment, in, in their case, I would say consequence, that someone would be go through all of this pain forever, uh, that the, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. So if you get a parking ticket, you are okay with getting a, you know, a $10 fine or a $15 fine, but if you got a $100,000 fine, you'd say, well, that is unjust. So at the heart of the whole question around hell, as far as I'm concerned, is the character of God. And because our view of God is so uh, amorphous and so uh, abstract and, um, and really low, frankly, uh, that it comes down to we believe that we're fairer than God and that God is un uh, ultimately not very fair. So to your question, how do I deal with that as a pastor? Uh, my teaching and preaching on hell, uh, as far as I can remember, I'm sure I messed up in many different directions, but it was always in the context of your relationship with Jesus. And I likened it a little bit to if you're a scuba diver and you're, you're warned by the guy that's teaching the scuba, if you cut your airline, let me tell you how horrible it's going to be. You're going to probably get the bins, which will make you feel like you... Uh, would like to die or that you've exploded, then eventually this will happen and this will happen, and by the time you get to the top, you will be dead. Um, so it, it, the, the, the idea of hell was always, for me, in a relationship uh, with Jesus. When you're separated from that, then that's the consequence. So, yeah, yeah, what's interesting about that is that Jesus was bluntly clear also that he's the vine, we're the branch— um, unless we abide in him, we're a broken-off branch that's going to die. It will have right. no life in ourselves. And, and he reiterated this in a vast number of ways, trying to explain to us our only source of life really is him. And so we dare not cut ourselves off from that in our arrogance or ignorance. Right, and I think, um, <clears throat> you know, there's obvious debate over uh, the language about hell. Um, my own 
feeling is it tends to be, generally speaking, as a literary form, somewhat hyperbolic. Uh, in the same way that it says that, Jesus, that God gra- gathers us under his wings. Uh, he, 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 they're not saying that God's a chicken, um, etc. And some of the characteristics of hell, I think, are um, not necessarily hyperbole in the sense of how bad it is, but the images that are drawn up, we tend to get caught in those and saying, well, fire, um, that that's really horrible, and... The weeping and gnashing of teeth, for example, it talks about in Revelation at the very end of the when Jesus returns. That the, the words there, weeping and gnashing of teeth, are uh, what it feels like for, of regret. I could have had a V8. Um, <laughs> I could have been all these years, and now looking into how beautiful God is, uh, and I'm not going to be able to experience Him, and the, it's the sense of loss or uh, for sports fans, and I, you know me, Rick, I'm a fanatic, but when the Broncos uh, were in a position to go to the Super Bowl a few years ago and they threw uh, the other team threw a pass which was easily intercepted, the guy fell down, he caught it, went into the end zone, and they got eliminated. And it was that weeping and gnashing of teeth of <laughs> what we could have had. So if you don't see Jesus as a big deal, and God is a big deal that you want to be with, then to lose him is no big deal. And so I think a part of the, the warning piece of hell is to, to warn people of the amazing consequences. And for the most part, we're like little kids that we're, you know, you're telling your kids, don't go out in the street, otherwise you might be run over by a car, and they don't even know what a car is. And it just looks like... So it's kind of like that. Yeah, what's fascinating, too, is that you brought up something here that I think is interesting about the language that Jesus uses and the language used by the Bible. Jesus clearly uses hyperbolic language, metaphoric language. He speaks and teaches in parables that are not physical, actual, real descriptions of things. He's using metaphoric language to help us understand things that are hard to understand. Like the other day, my wife Bev was... uh, uh, went, uh, ran across a passage where Jesus was uh, talking to his disciples about if you only had even a little micron of faith, like a mustard seed of faith, you could say to this mulberry bush, pick up and move over here, or you could say that mountain, pick up and move over there. And Bev said, you know what, Rick? I think in 2,000 years, nobody has said to a mountain, move over there, and it did it. I don't get this. And And I said, well, he's really using hyperbolic language to describe impossible things. And what's true is, since Jesus was on the cross, there have been millions and billions of impossible things done through trust and faith in Jesus, and that's really what he's saying. And and could somebody move a mountain from here to there? I guess so, but that's not really the point. The point is that faith in Jesus leads, uh, turns impossible things into possible things, and here he's using the hyperbolic language of what this feels like. He's trying to help us understand on a feeling level what what this will be like. And the other thing that struck me that uh, what you were talking about was this whole idea of unfair punishment and who gets to decide what's fair. And, and you know, um, I would say, I, I wish I would have looked this up before the podcast, but it didn't occur to me. But I know I just recently saw something that where, where in research they were asking people whether they were a good person or not. And th- there's this sense that there's a lot of bad people out there but it's hard to find those people because if you ask people, 
they generally consider themselves to, to be a good person no matter what. And those good people generally believe that they should be going to heaven because they're a good person. And so hell, on the face of it, seems like an unfair punishment because almost all of us think of ourselves as good people. And, and uh, the standard for heaven, not the standard of the Bible, but the standard for heaven in most people's minds is whether you're a good or bad person. And that really doesn't make any sense when everybody thinks that they're a good person. So, so this whole idea of who's choosing the fair or unfair punishment and what's the standard is a big issue as well. So let's I, go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say one more thing. I think to reiterate that the, really the reason that hell is not talked about and, and it has such a negative view, I mean, in the, not, it's obviously is negative, but it, it, why people feel like you shouldn't even talk about it and, and it wouldn't exist is because, again, it comes back to the character of God. If God is good, then whatever he does and says is good. But since we don't believe uh, in a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient uh, God, we, we have made God so small, we've made him in our own image. Kind of like in Romans one, where it says they made they ended up worshiping the creature rather than the creator, and so we we have this view of God, which is sort of a benign uh, grandfather from the past, rather than a living, uh, just person. Uh, so, as a result of that, you know, anything anything that he would do, even if he was lenient. Then, you know, I think about, not to get off on this thing, but just this Supreme Court ruling that just came out on the, the cake guy. Um, oh, the, so, the, the baker for Masterpiece Bakery who, yeah. who refused to make a, uh, a wedding cake for a gay couple. Yeah, because he didn't believe that—it wasn't that he wouldn't make him a cake, he just didn't, didn't want to make it because he believed that marriage— was sacred, and he didn't. That for him, that was you know not a good thing. So, but the Supreme Court ruled in his favor because he felt they felt that the uh, civil rights people of Colorado were unjustly sort of um, punishing him, and so as a result, there's there's obviously controversy on both sides. But it really comes down to fairness. So who uh, we all want the Supreme Court to rule in our favor. And so the folks that thought he they would do that they didn't. But so if you don't believe in the in the power or the vested power of our country in the Supreme Court, then it doesn't matter what they do. You're gonna if it isn't what you want, then you're gonna disagree and you're gonna say it's not fair. That's um, good. Yeah. So same thing with God. And of course, that's the thing about being in a kingdom. Most of us have never. Obviously, I haven't lived in a kingdom. But a kingdom means that a king is sovereign, and whatever he says goes, and, and it doesn't matter what you think. But the real part is that God is a king, and he is, he is good, and he's loving, and he's caring. Uh, and so if, if this is the consequence of not being with him, that is not a punishment. That is a warning of love to say, I love you so much. In fact, that's where Jesus' whole incarnation and coming to the cross and dying is so powerful, because uh, if it wasn't a big deal to not be with Jesus, and then, you know, Jesus really wasted his time. But it's so massive, and there's so such a huge consequence. That's why God was so extreme in his measure. What's, what's uh, fascinating, too, about what you're saying, too, is you 
as you frame God as the, the king that he is, he's a king also who, given all of that, wants not just a rhetorical intimate relationship with us, but a everyday, real intimate relationship with us. Uh, he's not keeping us separate, even though he's acting and setting truth and untruth in a king-like way all the time. So I thought it'd be interesting for us to to take a, a little bit of a deeper dive into uh, two sort of what I would call primary Jesus markers when it comes to hell. One's a story that he tells, and the other is a sort of a prophetic metaphor. We'll see if we can get to both of these, but at least we're going to go after the rich man and Lazarus. So, Tom, what I'd love for you to do is, as I'm reading this story, think about why Jesus is telling this story and why he's telling it the way that he's telling it. So, so let's take a look at this story that's in Luke 16 in my Jesus-centered Bible. It is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus is making up a story for a point. His parables always have a deep, deeply rooted point to them, even if initially the point isn't clear. So the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, here's what it says. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Hey, Father Abraham, have some pity! Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger into the water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he's here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to, to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Well, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. For I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. Well, the rich man replied, Well, no, Father Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they'll repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So there we have this very long parable. Uh, most of Jesus' parables are not this long and this detailed. It's kind of a supernatural story that he's telling. So, Tom, I said wh while I was reading that, uh, I wanted you to think about why would Jesus tell this story, and why would he tell it the way that he did? So what pops into your head? Well, I think a, a couple things. One, the most obvious is just to um, to bring to the attention that you, you need to pay attention now and a lot of people say, well, I just need more evidence before I believe. And he's saying if even they wouldn't believe when they were face-to-face -face with, you know, these truths, uh, how much more would we not believe? And so he's kind of, I think, calling attention to the, the um, complacency or uh, of not really kind of addressing what's, what's going on. So I think that's the underlying thing, and, and the reality is that it's a, a reality 
of great consequence. So the reason I think that he tells it in this form is to make it make it more real rather than abstract, more concrete, that it's an actual person he's talking to and it's a, uh, you know, someone that they're familiar with. It'd be like the difference between talking about some subject about how somebody behaved as opposed to saying, you remember old Uncle Harry? Remember when Uncle Harry uh, got drunk and drove his car off a cliff and and uh, as he did, you know, he ran into a car and blah, 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 as opposed to, you know, kids, it's very dangerous driving cars, and sometimes they go off cliffs. So be careful not to drive off a cliff. I think that's sort of a little bit of—who knows why he did it, but that's my guess. So he's burying it in a story so that it can be more personalized to them. What's What's also interesting is that the characters in the story— a rich man who didn't care about a poor man, a poor man who was in agony on earth and now at a banquet, and he's the guest of Abraham, who is the father of everyone Jesus is talking to at this moment. (laughs) Abraham is the source of life, or, or the source of family life, to the people he's talking to, so he puts Abraham in this story as well. Anything pop into your head about why he would do that, Tom? Well, I think one of the the things that comes out of this also, if you, in the bigger context, when he's, he's basically, this is a common uh, objection to hell, is it's so final, because they're really pleading, shouldn't he get another chance? I mean, it wasn't fair that he didn't understand in the first place. He must not have gotten it, but now that uh, he's in, in hell, shouldn't someone go down and tell him again? And this is sort of somewhat like some of the theologies of purgatory and some of those things, where it's like life itself is um, not the dividing point. That's sort of a a miscalculation. I think what he's saying is, you got your chance right now, don't don't overlook it. So back to the, why why would he do it in this way? I think, uh, like a lot of times, one of the dangers in any parable of which this is, is to try to to make it say more things than it does. Mm-hmm. Parables are primarily designed to say one thing. And so you can look at, and people will take this particular one and talk about, well, is, is are people actually communicating with people in hell? Is somebody in heaven actually looking down at, on people in hell? And some of those kind of things, and those are interesting, but I think those aren't the main thing. Those things would have been prevalent in Jesus' time, and they would add a meaning to them, but it would be different than a meaning to us today. Yeah, what's interesting, too, is we kind of started off this conversation about it putting all of this conversation of hell in a relational context, that the agony that hell d- describes for us is the essential agony of being separated from the source of all beauty, who's, who's Jesus, for eternity. And and the, the premise that I mentioned before of C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, is that even when people who are in hell meet beauty, they reject beauty and hang on to their hell for a variety yeah. of reasons. And it seems incredible that that would be true, but read The Great Divorce, and it makes perfect sense why some who you th- you would think would jump at the chance to get out of hell don't. Lewis does an incredible job of describing the psychology of those who reject Jesus even when they experience and taste him 
in his, in all of his beauty. So uh, it it goes back to the the end of this little parable when the rich man is saying, "Well, you know, if somebody came back from the dead, for sure my brothers would mend their ways." And and the and Abraham essentially says to him, "Nope, that's not true. There, you think they'd be convinced by that, but if they're not convinced by what's already obvious." in Scripture, then they're not going to be convinced by that. So that's a fascinating point that Jesus is trying to bring forth, that we, we're always thinking, if we just had a little more evidence, we would believe. And Jesus is essentially saying, I think you got enough already. <laughs> so yeah. let's, uh, let's turn back and let's see if we can uh, just end with, with this other one place where Jesus uses kind of a metaphoric language to talk about hell once again. This is in Matthew 25. In my Jesus-centered Bible, the heading over this uh, little passage is called The Final Judgment. This is where Jesus is talking about sheep and goats. And uh, essentially, I'm just going to paraphrase here what Jesus is saying in this Final Judgment segment. Again, it's quite long. So this whole segment is really about the separation of peoples between heaven and hell, and it's kind of an apocalyptic kind of teaching that Jesus is offering here. And so he's talking about how at the end of all time, all the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he'll separate people like a shepherd separates sheep from the goats, and he'll place sheep at his right hand and goats on his left. And and uh, Jesus, he sets this up by saying, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world— for I was hungry, and you fed me, and I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink, and I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing, and I was sick, and you cared for me, and I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the, he goes on to say that the, the righteous ones, the sheep on the right, say, well, I never did that to you. And Jesus said, well, yes, you did. Whenever you did it to one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. And then those on the left, the goats, would say, well, uh, you know, I never did the things that you just said. So Jesus is telling them, you know, you, you're, you're going to go to hell where the devil lives because I was hungry and you didn't feed me, and I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink, and so on. And they, they object to this and say, I, that, I never did that. Whenever did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? And he, again, Jesus reiterates, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these brothers and sisters, you're refusing to help me. So, and then the very last line, verse 46 says, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So, this long section where Jesus is so blunt and so, I guess you could say, not politically correct by separating people into sheep and goats, what what strikes you about this description, Tom, relative to our uh, conversation about hell? Well, I think one of the obvious ones to me is just the um, the fact that he is the one that ultimately recognizes whether somebody is with him or not. Even when it comes to hell and heaven, that would underscore, I think, back to God's justice, that you don't need to figure out if somebody else is going to heaven or hell, that um, he's making it the reality but it's always Jesus-centered, and it's always king-centered. The king, in the end, will ferret out uh, one from the other. So that's not your job. Your job isn't to figure that out. But on the other hand, it also, I think, it calls attention to uh, don't be deceived. You know, so in other passages, Jesus say, many come to me and say, Lord, Lord, but I'll say, I didn't even know you. 
and to not take for granted our relationship with him. I think, you know, to just say, well, I said the prayer, so everything's good, and it doesn't matter what I do, um, as opposed to saying, no, uh, this is about my relationship to Jesus. And But the other part of it is, I think, because remember, Satan is active in this whole thing. As it says in this passage, a place prepared by Satan, his uh, one of his primary things that he does is he's called the accuser. So he will uh, do anything, even he, he knows you're going to go to heaven, but he's going to make you feel like you're going to go to hell, and therefore you're going to live like you're in hell right now. And so it's it's you have to beware of how you evaluate your life. Um, is it just on what you've done, or is it what's going on between you and the Lord? Yeah, and I think this raises some interesting questions. Uh, uh, a few a few quick quick things from me about uh, what surfaces for me out of this, too, that we, we talked before about one one view of hell, and the universalist view of hell is that Jesus is so full of love that no one, he, he will deny no one his presence in heaven, and, uh, and I, I think that's a bastardization of what love really means. Underlying that, at some point, it means that whether or not you want to love Jesus, you're, at some point, you won't be given the choice. You, he will overwhelm you. Um, and it will no longer be an issue of choice. And I think uh, if if that happens even one time, the the foundation for his love unravels. I think there's a fundamental flaw in this thought that uh, how could a loving God ever quote unquote send someone to hell? Well, what's true is that a loving God will never obliterate your ability to choose to love, uh, because that then that obliterates the foundation for love itself. And the other thing that uh, surfaces for me with this is that, well, it's clearly from the amount of focus Jesus gives this, well, hell hell exists, and God paid the ultimate price to make sure we can choose a relationship with him, not make it a sort of a default setting for us that we have no choice about. So the the fact that hell exists is also underscoring the fact of our choice and the, and the great cost that God has paid to maintain that ability to choose. He, he said, uh, Jesus said his mission was to free the captives, not to bind them up in a default setting that says you must love God whether or not you want to. So part of his respect for us is to allow us to experience consequences for our actions and choices. If he didn't respect us, he would obliterate those consequences. So we, we have a choice uh, in this uh, penalty of sin. Uh, we have a choice to shift that penalty over to Jesus. That's the choice that he's won for us. So a couple of quick questions to close off here, Tom. What does Jesus's sort of frequent focus on hell tell us about his heart? That's the first one. And then why should we even care about hell, its existence, its characteristics? Why should that matter to us at all in daily life? So what does Jesus focus on hell tell us about his heart? And why should we care about it in our daily life? Well, I, <clears throat> I think about the statement you made at the beginning of our time about the atheist guy who said, I don't have any respect for somebody who doesn't proselytize. I, I think that, that that's a great point. Uh, and it, it, it proselytize tends to be a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all are proselytizing all the time in some form or another. I mean, basically you're talking about convince or to persuade um, so uh, to the, the whole point of if, if someone is getting ready to get run over by a truck, 
um, you, you want to persuade them to move out of the, the street. So to your question, what difference does it make, and why does he talk about it so much, it's, it's a consequence. It's not the, the end. It's not the object. It's just what happens as a result of not being um, rightly connected to Jesus. And so he wants, it's a warning, almost always, in essence, and it, because he's the creator, and he descended into hell, and he knows what it looks like, and he was ascended, um, it's like I went there, and, it, you know, it's horrible, and I don't want you to have to go there. So I think that's why it's significant. Uh, I think in terms of the day-to-day, what differences it makes, uh, my opinion there is that it, it should it, it it shouldn't be we shouldn't fixate uh first john says perfect love casts out fear and so the the relationship so we're called we're told that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of god that's not the fear of his punishment it's the uh, awareness of how great he is um and and his ability to do whatever he chooses to do so don't take it for granted but when it comes to this, it, it's not to say we should live in fear of going to hell. If we know him, we should not fear that. But we should realize it, it should lead us to a daily understanding of grace, that what he has saved us is both from something, but he saved us from the consequences of hell uh, for something, for him, so we can enjoy him. So I think that's on a daily basis where awareness of hell would influence our life. That's so good. Well, Tom, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. And by the way, uh, I said I'd put a link to Tom's site on, on our podcast page. Uh, his organization is called uh, Melton Leadership, and his website is meltonleadership.org. You can find the link for that and other links to the things we've talked about today on paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're just going to look for our podcast section and Season 3, Episode 24. And don't forget, gang, uh, please do go out and grab a copy of Spiritual Grit, post your review on Amazon, or sign up for the Simply Jesus Gathering, which is in July. Put a link to our page on that as well. Come hang out with a bunch of Jesus-loving people in the Colorado mountains. Campfires and great food and fantastic conversation. Uh, uh, I'll be there, and I'd love to meet you there. So we'll put a link to that on our page as well. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. Thanks a lot for joining me today, Tom. We'll we'll talk again next time.